0: Welcome to Hiring to Firing, the podcast. I'm Evan Gibbs, and with me is my co-host, Tracy Diamond, and we're both partners at Troutman Pepper and the firm's Labor and Employment Practice Group, and I think that together, we've handled pretty much every employment issue from hiring to firing, and hence the name of our podcast.
1: Today, we're very excited to have our first on-camera recording of our podcast.
0: And we're also happy to welcome today's guest, Josh Burnett, who's General Counsel for North America at DS Smith here in Atlanta. Josh, why don't you tell us about D.S. Smith and your role with the company?
2: Absolutely. First and foremost, thank you for having me today. Excited to be here for the first video recording. Hopefully it won't be the last, but we'll see how it goes. As far as D.S. Smith is concerned, D.S. Smith is a large, multinational, integrated manufacturer of paper and container board products. So in effect, cardboard containers, but we like to think of our business as a bit more sexy than that. So we specialize in producing sustainably-minded products that we sell to a variety of customers, including e-commerce customers, FMCG, which stands for fast-moving consumer good customers, industrial customers, and the like. And we're based in London, traded on the London Stock Exchange, are a FTSE 100 company there, and have our U.S. headquarters here in Atlanta.
0: Thanks, Josh. And for those of you watching or listening, if you look on the bottom of your cardboard boxes, there's usually a stamp on the bottom that shows where that box came from. And I pay very close attention now to look and see which ones have the DS Smith logo on the bottom little bit of insight there and uh, to look for that. That's right. We yeah. trained Evan well, we trained <laughs> Evan well. That's right. It's always got that little stamp on the bottom. Have you always worked in-house or what's your career trajectory been like? I have not
2: always worked in-house, although I think my path to my in-house roles was a bit conventional with a few twists and turns here at of law school. I actually worked at a large law firm here in Atlanta, did that for approximately four years, was an M&A associate, general corporate law, some corporate finance work, I really got comfortable taking on a variety of additional matters because I joined shortly before the Great Recession and the 2008-2009 downturn. And so, as we all know, in big law, the name of the game is trying to fill as much time as you can, bill as much time as you can, engage in as many profitable matters as you can. And when there was just not a whole lot of general corporate or M&A activity in those two years, I learned to get very comfortable taking on a variety of different matters from ERISA matters to some different litigation matters that had extreme touch points with corporate law, did some investigatory work, and it really gave me a solid foundation for the comfort level that you need going in-house and handling a variety of different subject matters. After about four years, I had a couple opportunities to examine in-house roles that had been presented to me, and I wound up joining a company by the name of Southwire Company out in Carrollton, Georgia, so just west of Atlanta. Southwire is one of the largest electrical wire and cable manufacturers in the world. I worked my way from general corporate counsel there to VP and associate general counsel. And actually in the two years prior to joining DS Smith, I was in a completely non-legal role. They had asked me to engage in a role on the commercial side of things. And so I took on a VP of M&A integration role, which is what I was doing when I got the opportunity to join DS Smith. And You know, there was actually a point in time where I thought I may never see the legal side again. I just, I was really enjoying what I did. But when I was presented with the opportunity to join D.S. Smith, it was very compelling. Would have been the first legal role in-house that they had ever had, was shortly after they entered the U.S. market. And lo and behold, here I am. So I've been there for nearly five years and it's been a fun and interesting ride. During that time, I also served as a interim HR director for about two months while we searched for a full-time replacement. That was the I'm sure the most fun uh-huh. part of your career that you've had.
1: They've had a lot of hats on. Yeah. I will tell
2: you this. I gained a newfound respect and appreciation for HR practitioners and professionals everywhere. It is truly a very interesting role, but it is they are very
0: demanding roles. Tough job dealing with people. I mean it can be really challenging. Never so. a dull moment. When
1: you have a lot of balls in the air, like an HR person often does, sometimes things will get missed, right? And you'll just have employees that are complaining, and it's a lot of noise, and it's hard to get through that noise to see what's real, which I think brings us to today's topic. Yeah,
0: that's a really great segue. The focus of today's podcast just happens to be on the risks around companies failing to timely and sometimes appropriately investigate workplace complaints. We're talking about whistleblower complaints and then those you know, relating to discrimination and harassment, maybe even socks whistleblower types complaints. There's a lot of different types of whistleblower or claims like that out there. And so we'll go through some of those different types of claims that we come across. And as usual, we're gonna use a show to illustrate some of the concepts we're gonna to discuss today. Tracy and Josh aren't super thrilled about my choice for the show today. The show of today, as a filming, the show Dahmer Monster from Netflix has been out for a little while. It's been out for several months, and a lot of folks have watched that. I watched it. If you don't know, the show documents the life and crimes of the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, primarily from the early 90s. We'll go ahead, and as usual, we'll listen to our first clip from the show can you send
1: an officer to the Oxford apartments
2: what's the emergency?
1: well I I, I think it's a, a fight going on next door and somebody somebody is either being hurt or killed
0: can you go make sure what what no
1: I can't I said I think somebody is being killed I ain't going next door
2: We'll send a car over.
1: wait, wait you're not even gonna ask me the apartment number
2: ma'am.
0: I said we'd send somebody.
1: Y'all always say you're going to send somebody, and nobody ever shows. I done called y'all like 50 times.
0: I need you to lower your voice, okay? And if you keep calling us all the time, how are we going to know when it's an emergency? 911 is a resource, okay?
1: I am
0: saying
1: somebody is being killed. Do you get that?
0: As disturbing as the clip was, I think it does really highlight the issue that we see sometimes of people within an organization ignoring complaints that are received or heard by employees. I know this is of course an extreme example, but Tracy, what are some of the legal risks in a situation where an employee within an organization is making complaints and it's just being ignored?
1: There's several, right? First of all, if there's a real concern that the employee is bringing to the company's attention and the company doesn't do anything about it, then there's the risk of liability for not having handled the issue that's being complained about. There's also the concern where the whistleblower themselves is bringing that complaint and has a reasonable belief of a violation of the law and then gets somehow retaliated against, experiences some form of adverse employment action and could bring a whistleblower claim. So there's the underlying complaint, maybe it's discrimination or harassment or some other wrongful conduct, and then there's the potential for a whistleblower complaint on top of Mm -hmm. that.
0: I wanted to bring this issue up, Josh. You were mentioning, you know, when you had your sort of interim HR role. Yeah. I know that what I've heard from clients a lot of times is a lot of, convenience I mean, of course, depends on the size of the organization. Mm-hmm. But typically in a large organization, there may be a lot of complaints that are bubbling up through the system to the HR department or to maybe just frontline supervisors. So I'm curious if you guys have seen that and sort of the volume of complaints and whether that turns down the volume on them for the people who maybe receive them i'm just curious if y'all have had any experience with it
2: so that's a great question and you sort of touched on this with any large size organization you really do expect to have a baseline number of complaints come through your whistleblower channel we call ours the speak up channel and you hope to receive again a baseline number of complaints because what that tells you even if many of them are not actionable or substantiated It tells you that there's a confidence present in your employee base within that particular channel. And it gives them a forum that they oftentimes don't think they have within their line management to access. And so we do see a fair number of complaints come through our lines that we maintain at DS Smith. Again, we think that's a healthy sign of the business and where our employees are relative to trusting that medium. Fortunately, I've never experienced a situation anywhere remotely close to what we see in the clip, but thankfully, thankfully yeah. thankful. <laughs> I hope I never do, but I have experienced a, a bit of the detrimental impact that a failure to act or really a failure to act promptly can have on the complaint or the matter complained of itself. Yeah. I have
1: a couple of questions for you. You're talking about your speak up line. Is that a hotline? I know sometimes companies don't know what type of avenues they should be offering yeah. to
2: employees. And to that's complain. important. First and foremost, Tracy, it's very important to communicate out what those avenues are. Right. Right. And we look at our system as having three prongs, which I can touch on in a moment. But to answer your immediate question, our hotline is the primary avenue through which we seek to have employees register their complaints. It's maintained and managed by an outside third party. Oh, really? It is a telephone system so that those employees, particularly we're a manufacturing company, so we want to ensure that those employees that are less connected or that don't have email access within the company, that they've got a mechanism that they can use to access that hotline. So we do use telephone, but we also inform others that do have the more ready electronic access that they can contact us via email anytime and instruct them to, if not using the Speak Up hotline, to email our company secretary, function, or internal legal counsel.
1: I know we always recommend having alternative ways to communicate complaints, Mm -hmm. really important.
0: And I really like the concept of being run by a third party. Because I have, you know, another issue I was going to touch on was sometimes I've had situations in the past where, you know, a complaint is raised, and because of the working relationship between maybe a supervisor and a Mm -hmm. subordinate, the supervisor said, well, you know, this person just complains all the time. I'm not hearing any more of this and writes off what may be very legitimate complaints. Whereas if it's going through a third party, and then going from that third party to the right channels, maybe that's a better way to make sure the company's getting the complaints and handling them right.
1: Yeah, and I think you're hitting on a really important issue because we all have heard of the employee that's the complainer. Mm. You know, how do you get through that noise and figure out what's a real complaint and what is just a run-of-the-mill complaining because of all sorts of things that really don't rise to the level of a legal complaint or even a viable workplace complaint? You just have the person complaining all the time about everything.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things from, we don't have it in the clip that we showed, but in the show, they discuss that Dahmer's neighbor, and that's the lady who made the call in this clip we just watched, that she had called police, I can't remember exactly how many times, it was like two or three dozen times, she had called so many times. And the insinuation was that, oh, she calls all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we're not really, you know, this is Glinda. We're not going to take her seriously. And so I think there is that very real issue that the show highlights for us. Isn't Glinda the Good Witch? I think so, I think that's right. (laughs) She certainly was in this case. Yeah, that's right, yes. (laughs) I think that really brings us right into our next clip. And it's not actually from the show, but I thought this one was really great because it's an actual 911 call that was placed by Glenda Cleveland. And again, as I mentioned, that's Jeffrey Dahmer's next door neighbor. So here's a clip of that call.
1: Okay, i right, on um, uh, I'm out of 25th the state. And you young man, and he's right at the end, he's just beat up, he's very bruised up. He can't stand, he's 35 miles, like he has huge but man, you have no
0: crowns on, and you was hurt and i you know i ain't got no corner on my screen coming he needs where's the the ad uh 25th state the corner at 25th Date. so on the show after making this call police respond to the location from where Glenda called and they found a young boy he was 14 years old and he was naked on the street and was acting very unusual he had visible wounds was acting very strangely jeffrey dahmer then appeared on the street. And told the police officers who responded that this was his boyfriend who was drunk, that they'd had a, a domestic dispute, and the officers just totally bought into Dahmer's story and they actually escorted the child back to Dahmer's apartment where minutes later, Dahmer later confessed that he killed the boy. Um, awful. Yeah. I mean it's horrible from start to finish the facts of the case and the story it tells. But this clip highlights a couple of things, I think, in particular. And first, it shows, I think, the problem with companies that don't thoroughly investigate complaints. And second, I think it also really highlights that companies sometimes don't respond timely and they don't respond appropriately, even if... Let's say an investigation is conducted, they respond, but they may not do the right thing in response to the investigation. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that or what your experience are on those two issues.
2: Yeah, so I'll tell you, I mentioned a moment ago the three pillars that our, and I think really any successful whistleblower program rests on. And one, we talked about it earlier, there's an awareness within the employee base in this case, we see it with the neighbor. She's got the conduit of the 911 system to levy her complaint, right? So there's a general awareness within the employment base to access management and to register their complaint. Secondly, there is a confidence in the fact that they can register that complaint and have it actioned on. And that is an absolute foundational understanding that has to be present within any successful system. And then Evan To highlight this point, there's a responsiveness that absolutely has to be emphasized by the respondents in this case. So in the capacity of a corporation, it's the inside legal counsel or whomever is monitoring that hotline that has to take immediate and prompt action. And we see in this case, and you talked about the perils of failing to respond, of failing to timely respond. And so really, the confidence that your employee base and anybody accessing that conduit is going to have in that resource is going to be directly impacted by the level at which and the promptness with which you respond to your complaints.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I've seen in my career a variety of reasons that complaints haven't been acted on appropriately. I mean, sometimes there will be an investigation that's conducted that's really an appropriate investigation. It's timely. It's done correctly. And then whomever it is that does the investigation, a lot of times they don't have the power to maybe do anything about it, and they really are just sort of a fact checker. Mm -hmm. And they do the investigation, then they take it to the decision maker and say, here's what I found. We've got to do something about this. And then oftentimes, for example, if you've got a really high-performing salesperson who is alleged to have retaliated against somebody or, you know, done something to somebody else within the organization, and maybe that's substantiated, well, then an executive in charge of that person says, you know, this particular salesperson is so valuable to the organization. Yeah, we cannot live without them. Or maybe it's an executive or a founder of a company. That's another issue that I've seen come up more recently are individuals who help found the company or maybe the actual owner of a company. What do you do in those situations? Have you ever dealt with that where it's someone where it's sort of a indispensable type person comes How up y'all. all the
1: time in my practice and yeah. you know there are avenues of corrective action short of termination for that high performing person who the investigation is showing either acted inappropriately or committed some form of misconduct so often i'll talk to my clients about that whether it's training whether it's a warning a performance improvement plan some kind of monitoring sometimes it's a matter of just separating out the complainer from the harasser along with the training and corrective action for I'm saying the harasser, but sort of the wrongdoer because it's not just harassment that we're talking about
2: today. Absolutely. And we've seen that as well, or I've at least seen it in my experience over the years where the subject of the complaint is a high profile person within the company. But I think as executives, as managers of that conduit, you have to treat every complaint, regardless of the subject, with the utmost care, utmost seriousness and utmost integrity. Otherwise, the integrity of the entire system fails. And you have to understand that a failure to act, a failure to treat it with the seriousness that the allegation requires can ultimately result in an erosion in the confidence of the medium itself. And in the worst situations, I think can have an erosion within your employee base of all company policy. And ultimately as an executive, even if you're a founder of the company, you understand the value and the importance of the person that was the subject of the complaint. You have to understand that the negative impact on the overall culture of your company can be, it could just be profound with any failure to treat those sorts of complaints seriously.
0: Yeah, and I also have the legal risk. There are also the non-legal ones like impacts to morale. Cause I think it's really common sense that employees talk about mm-hmm. this stuff. At least as outside lawyers, we come in and it's all sort of very siloed, at least when I usually get involved. Things have become siloed and here's the complaining party and here's the respondent, the perasser or whatever, you, the bad actor. And it's siloed. But in reality, a lot of times, you know, it's a group that's those two. And there's eight other people and they're in an office together and they're talking about it. And other people have seen it. There's always witnesses. And then if the company doesn't. For every
1: complainer, there's eight that want to complain, but Mm -hmm. don't feel comfortable speaking
0: up. Exactly. And so if one person finally comes forward and complains and there's nothing done, I have seen it, it can spread rapidly. Mm-hmm. And it's just like there's almost a complete loss of faith almost overnight. What do you do about sometimes? that
1: complainer, right, that is just complaining and there really is no substance to that complaint? How do you handle the other side of this?
2: I think that's a great question. And what we strive to do is truly train our employees on appropriate use of the whistleblowing or speak up Line And there's a fine line in doing that, and you sort of walk on tenuous ground in doing that because the last thing we want to do is suppress otherwise rightful complaints coming through. Right, But we also want the medium treated with respect and understood within the employee base as far as what are the appropriate complaints that should be coming through this hotline. And you have to understand that as inside counsel, you're going to get complaints that should typically just be raised through line management. And there are going to sometimes be complaints by those quote unquote serial complainers. And I think in those cases, it does warrant a discussion with those individuals about what the proper use looks like while thanking them for their efforts, for the desire to raise complaints to that level. But it's a fine line that you have to walk in a balance that you have to strike so that you are not otherwise suppressing the content that you really need to come through. It is a
1: fine line, and it's a hard line to practice, right? Right. It's easier to talk about it than to put it into practice, for
0: sure. Yeah, and there's also a very real legal risk as well, right? I mean, what if someone is a serial complainer, and it becomes a problem to where you're really taking up a lot of resources? If you call us, we're typically going to say, well, you can't discipline them. Of course, it depends on the nature of the complaint, right? they're trying I mean, to
1: get someone fired, maybe you can discipline them, but it <laughs> that's depends right. on the facts.
0: Yeah, it depends on the facts. But in a lot of situations, our advice is going to be, well, you can't fire them. We can get creative and think of other things to do, but we can't just fire them because then we may have a retaliation complaint. So it's always a delicate situation. And
1: often we'll get the call of, we want to fire them. Yeah, you know, This person's complaining right. all the time, right. we want them gone yesterday.
0: Yes, the call is typically we've been dealing with this for months and we're going to fire them tomorrow. Can you just affirm our decision? Never mind like, the great
1: performance on. evaluation we gave them six months
0: ago. Yes, that's <laughs> always the case. Well, they've been a stellar performer. Well, they've been a bad performer, but we didn't want to have the difficult conversation when we were doing performance reviews. Right. And so we've always given them, you know, meets or exceeds expectations. And so they, of course, think they're the golden child. Mm. Yeah. Well, I do think
2: that is where our role as council really comes into play and where our skill set has to be exercised to the utmost. Because we are called upon to be objective fact finders, to be as dispassionate about it as possible, and part of that is understanding the landscape that you're playing within. And if it involves a serial complainer, you may, using your objectivity, determine that, well, after looking into the complaint to the extent that you should, that it's just not worth further investigating. Right. But that situation to me is very different from the situation we saw in the first clip where the lady is saying, I've called you 54 some odd times and nobody has ever checked on this. Right? That is a very different situation than the serial complainant. We've
1: been there 54
0: times. Right, we've, right. we've checked this thoroughly, exactly. ma'am. But yeah, that, well, it, it's
1: one thing to complain about what someone had for lunch. This woman was complaining right. that she thinks people are being killed next door. Right. And right. sadly, it's a real-life story that yeah. happened, and the police ignored it.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious. Hopefully this doesn't happen often in the workplace, but I'm curious if complaints, not that people are being killed, but serious complaints of sexual harassment and things like that, and people say, I know Jim or whomever, you know, this person, he would never do that. You know, I was watching, I know this is sort of tangential, but I've been kind of following this Murdoch murder Mm -hmm. case. And some of the folks who knew the defendant really well say, there's no way he could ever do that. And I knew him really well. And I've heard that in these investigations, you know, I know so and so there's no way he's a family man. He wouldn't do something like this. Well, again, Evan, I think that illustrates the inherent bias that can often be present within
2: investigators. And again, going to that point that I made, that it's critical for us to ensure that we are as objective as possible and as thorough as possible. And don't let things like inherent biases really play a role because that's where you can find yourself in trouble and find yourself, again, negatively impacting the integrity of the entire process.
1: That's a really good point, Josh, because ultimately that boy who was found was brought back to Dahmer and was killed so another issue here that these clips illustrate is the importance of making sure that there is an unconscious bias in your investigation procedure. In this example with Dahmer, it was a homosexual boy that was found. Dahmer used as an excuse that it was his boyfriend, and the police just handed him back over to Dahmer.
0: That's an excellent point. I think there were two levels of bias there, because the young man, he was of Laotian descent. And so I think both the, in my opinion, I think the race of the caller, Glenda was black, the victim in the situation is an Asian boy, and then you've got a white man who comes right. into the situation and tells two white men, hey, there's nothing to see here. This is my boyfriend. And they automatically discount all of the other very objective evidence right. present in front of their eyes and then you know escort the kid back to his apartment. And completely
1: so, horrifying and such yeah. a good example of what you were just saying mm-hmm. in terms of the importance of making sure that there's no unconscious bias in your investigation process.
2: Absolutely. And what we saw there in his history has shown us, it's said that Dahmer was always very cooperative, or at least was in this case, very cooperative, very respectful with the Clean police. Cut. Clean cut. Yeah. Absolutely. And they were inclined to believe him for that reason, despite the fact that they see this badly beaten boy in front of him that they basically hand back over to him. So just so many missteps. Awful. Right. And such bad judgment despite the fact that you've got very objective facts in front of you that say, hey, we need to look into this further. And at the very least, take those initial steps, getting this kid help that should have been done, but weren't.
0: That's right. Mm -hmm. And I think just the last point I'll tie on here is, of course, I think we've said on many, maybe every episode of our podcast is training. We can't overemphasize the value of training. And I know that people within an organization who have normal jobs are like, oh my God, another HR or whatever kind of training, leadership training, I whatever. cue we call the eye it.
1: roll. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. I think it's really helpful. There are some really, I think, great vendors out there that have training that's interesting and it's engaging and it doesn't have to just be a lawyer type person or an HR person from the Company saying, here's what discrimination is. I mean, there are some really good training programs out there that I think are really valuable. If anyone watching or listening is thinking about that, there are some great options out there. And not just
1: harassment, right? Code of conduct mm -hmm. training, training about ethics, conflicts of interest, and all of that.
0: And
2: I will say this, as I've been sitting here chatting with you all, it's not lost on me that what we're doing here is actually a great opportunity and a great format to use to train employees, Mm -hmm. to take In this case, very morbid, difficult clips and content and apply real world application from a corporate perspective using that as an explanatory tool. I think it's
0: a great creative way to do that. That's right. Well, listeners, viewers, feel free to take this idea and run with it and create (laughs) your own training program in your organization. Or call us. Yeah, Yeah, call us. We'll record it for you. Yeah. Come in here and we'll do it for you. I think this has been a great discussion. We really appreciate you joining us today, Josh. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And listeners, viewers, now viewers, first time we've said that, thanks so much for joining us for this installment of our podcast. And be sure to subscribe. We're on all the major platforms. And please leave us a review or even shoot us an email to let us know what you think.
1: And also check out our blog, hiringtofiring.law.
2: Thank you. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties express or implied regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.